Hi guys, welcome to the Accounting Tech Tar Pit, presented by Early Adopters Hub, the accelerator for accounting tech. I'm your host, Jack Teal, and this is a podcast for accounting tech startup founders focused on no BS, candid conversations about the challenges and benefits of building a startup in the accounting industry. Hey listeners, uh, Johan and I are excited to present uh, a pretty amazing guest today. Probably the person who needs the very least of introductions, uh, and that is Ignition's co-founder and CEO, Guy Pearson. Great to have you here, Guy. Great to be here. That's that's quite the introduction. I don't think I deserve that one, but I'll take it. I got a few. I got a few more things to say, so so I, I will give you a proper intro. But we are really excited to have this conversation, uh, and obviously appreciate you giving us some of your time. Um, you're obviously a sought-after person in the industry. Um, but before we start, I will. I will preface this by saying, you know, we usually try and cut through the survivorship bias. Uh, you know, there's a lot of headlines that cover the stories and, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of headlines with Ignition in it. Uh, but, you know, we, we want to have this open conversation with you about, you know, the mistakes and challenges that you made and understand that even in a major success story, that it's not all, it's not all roses. It's, you know, there are some ups and downs and some probably some pretty big risks that you took to get there and you know, it'd be good to kind of uncover what that journey was like. So for those who don't know you, um, you're obviously pretty well known for being the current CEO of Ignition, uh, but also one of the original founders. Um, You are, as a platform, pretty much the client engagement, proposal, commerce, and fee collection uh, tool of choice for accountants around the world. Obviously, you've gone out into other spaces as well, beyond accounting, uh, but that's not where we play, so I won't go into that. Uh, my old firm used it. The vast majority of firms in the early adopters hub use it as well. You guys have done an amazing job solving a very big problem for the industry. You've brought the market forward. You've helped everybody to innovate. Uh, obviously, a challenge in itself. Uh, so keen to get into that. Before Ignition, though, you were the founder of Interactive Accounting, which is now Sendar, I believe. And um, you know, I, I take it that's where you came up with the the idea, or that's where you kind of experienced the pain, which is great. And and now, alongside being the CEO of Ignition, you invest in, in early stage startups uh, under the brand Utilism, which we'll, we'll get into in a separate part, uh, kind of part two of this episode. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the nitty gritty of your investing kind of portfolio. So what, was there anything that I missed there? Any other background that you want to kind of add? Did I make any mistakes? Uh, I was a bartender at Four Pines uh, when they first kicked off. Uh, they got their 15th birthday this week. I don't know how timely the publication of the podcast is, but I, I feel like aside from working in other firms and a few other failed startups, which we could talk about later, um, were they good experiments? Um, that's spot on, mate. Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll get we'll get right into it. So uh, we did a little bit of pre-work with you and um, something that you mentioned was that, you know, in terms of how Ignition started, uh, that, you know, the app partners you were working with didn't want to build tighter integrations and you wanted to run a better, more profitable and cash flow positive accounting firm. So you took it upon yourself to solve the problem. At that time, did you did you think it was just you who had this problem or were you assuming that everyone else in the accounting industry was going to feel the same pain as you? And yeah, how did you kind of, how confident were you that this was a, a thing everybody wanted and needed? Oh, I was so confident that like everybody was just going to jump ship and, and want to run their business uh, in the same way. So like all good software products were released, sort of a minimum viable product. And I just thought it was going to 
you know, solve everyone's operating problem as they were sort of moving into value added reseller mode. So choosing QuickBooks or Zero and being like, we are going to sell that in a payables platform, reporting platform and have a you know, bookkeeping, management, accounting and advisory piece, but it's all going to be collected monthly. So that was effectively what our first product did. Um, uh, and very, very structured and very like minimal flexibility. Uh, harsh reality bit that uh, I thought that way and, and perhaps there was good handful of, of friends who were also probably at the bleeding edge big shout out to steph hines um and that and you know one of our i think has id number one in our data database so it's like you know very early adopters um but the reality was that everyone first thing we provided structure and scalability the first thing everyone wanted was flexibility um and so it was very um humbling because like everyone who perhaps has thought about starting their own software product, I thought it was going to be easy. And, you know, here we are a decade later and, uh, you know, we've built an amazing product, but we're effectively still sort of, you know, billing and payments management for professional services at this point. So. I, I don't think any founder is immune to that. I think most people have that same confidence. That's what it takes to, to start a business, right? You have to kind of be overly optimistic of your chances. 100%. Um, but like, if, if you were going back and doing this again, how, how do you think you can avoid that mistake? No. Um, I think you kind of need it to push through. Uh, someone, I forget what it was, it was like Startups Daily or something years ago, profiled a bunch of founders and I was one of them. And they were sort of like, which, um, which, was it like, which X-Men or which Marvel superhero would you be? And I've probably seen a whole lot more of the Avengers movies and stuff since then. But um, I actually thought of the juggernaut without realizing he was a bad person. Um, and that's mostly because it's like you, you need to be able to run through a brick wall um, to kind of push through because everyone will tell you no. People tell me it was a bad idea. People tell me that uh, we could never get it off the ground. People tell me that, you know, it's going to be a big, you know, flaming pile of excrement. Um, you know, you just said, like, you know, I feel like we're probably a 10-year somewhat overnight success story. You know, it's it's not a, a – definitely a journey to get here. So, um I would have loved to have been able to code software. I could build a website back in sort of 2013 days, um, but like writing Ruby on Rails code and et cetera, et cetera, like there were no low code, no code tools to speak of. Um, so, you know, maybe starting it today might be a little bit different in terms of sort of V1 and VP and getting it off the ground. But uh, another thing I could say potentially would change uh, would probably be timing. So I probably should have realized that my accounting firm was, um, I'm not trying to sound too arrogant here, a little bit bleeding edge and kind of we built five websites in the first 18 months of it existing so that we could have a scalable sales process and, you know, uh, onboarding with Wi-Fi forms with logic based in on the website. You could SSI with to platforms from the website, you know, like all these things that kind of don't exist on a website today and we were doing that. And it was like somehow in my mindset, I thought that me building a software product would, um, help the industry make the changes they wanted to make, but that everyone would jump on board when no one else was doing the website stuff. And I think there's a, a slight disconnect in terms of market being ready on day one. Um, so like timing, I'm probably always early. Uh, big call of what it is. Uh, Guy, just to jump in. Um, sure. So, I mean, you, you touched on something, I think that's, you know, for us working with early stage startups, we see that challenge all the time of the founder that are confident or sometimes overconfident. 
and they underestimate, you know, that there's a lot that they don't know and a lot of challenges that they can't quite expect. Um, so like, like you said, it's kind of like you do need that, that, that drive and determination. Otherwise, you know, you won't succeed at all. But you do need to kind of like uh, be humble at some point, like you said, that, that these, it's not always going to be as easy as you think. And these quite a lot that you don't know. So how, how, how do you think you find that balance of still being confident where you're trying to go long term, but actually being humble and listening to the feedback that's going to see you in the right direction early on? Um, I think I struggle with it particularly because I would, having come from the profession and built arguably a somewhat successful business, like I would struggle with the pushback around, you know, you don't know how to run an accounting firm because I get that a lot. Um, and so personally, I think the best thing we did was when we raised a tiny bit of money, we managed to hire a salesperson. I think we had four people at the time, maybe five. And that person even if I was sitting in on the call or listening back to it for feedback, uh, their ability to exception handle with no passion necessarily tied to like having run an accounting firm was, was probably a huge thing um, for us. In terms of hearing no, it was really brutal uh, personally in, in the in the early days because, you know, you've bet the farm in my view. So like uh, we'll get to utilism later, but my journey as accountant Accountants who wanted to implement tech quickly with the accounting firm to deliver information to small businesses and then software to help accountants run their business so they could deliver tech to deliver information to way more SMBs and have better lives, right? Like that's the, the kind of direction to travel for me, right? And then investing in those people who are looking to help that same journey again, right? So that's, that's full circle. Um, and so I couldn't get my head around how people like all I wanted to do was help them run a different style of business so that they could help get more information or better information to the hands of the clients quicker. So I struggled with the pushback against that um, more so than anything else that, that I may have got as feedback. Um, and so I, I thought it was incredibly logical, but uh, yeah, best thing we did was hire someone else um, to be able to take those calls and that brunt, uh, uh, that sort of coal face of the sales motion Um because they didn't take a, a personal uh, impact to it. Could have open conversations about how do we improve the product, like all those sorts of things. That was all fine. I had no ego around that. But I, um, the the no's got really, really hard because also you get it. I got it a lot on the investment front. So it was like, you know, no, 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 no. And that's the confidence piece that kind of has to be there. You have to be, and probably the juggernaut piece, yeah. you kind of have to be like willing to go through that, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, listen to feedback, consider which piece is best because you don't have enough data there to do what we would do today in terms of measuring impact and seeing usage and we release something and it gets used a thousand times the next day. Like everything kind of has to be on gut and feedback at that point. So it's really, really important to put your ego to the side as much as possible. But if there's something that you as a founder are struggling with because you have a, like I had an emotional attachment to my mission in life, I struggled to hear the, the no with saying I didn't understand what the problem or how they ran their business or what the problems were. That's something it's best to pull yourself out of as soon as possible. Uh, on that, I think on a complementary kind of topic to that, that, that kind of gut feel and, um, you know, if you look inward at who you are and, and how your personality applied well to, you know, achieving success with Ignition, 
um, you know, I think risk is a massive factor and, and being comfortable with it. And, or, you know, I'd be keen to kind of understand how you see risk because, uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of accountants are risk adverse. Uh, you were running a firm. Um, now you've been through this journey. What What's your risk appetite and did that change over the course of building this startup? So I'm probably a little bit perhaps uh, risk forward. It'd probably be a good way to frame it up. Um, I, without getting into too much detail, I uh, had worked in mid-tier straight out of high school through to the age of 24, turned down partnership opportunity at a firm. Um, loved the firm. I just wanted to move into the like tech and helping SMBs. Um, I went overseas in the gap, which is how I ended up working for Four Pines because like I don't had time and I was like, I'll earn some more money and did the same when I got back. Um, and so the, um, the firm was very much on the back of like, you know, finishing up, uh, seven years of slogging it out. Um, some travel, uh, no money left cause it was post GFC and I'd been a good accountant and put my money in mutual funds. So the balance had been going down whilst I was traveling. So instead of coming back with say, let's call it $10,000 as a 25 year old ready to start the business and, have money and back then 10 grand probably went further. So like, you know, being able to actually build up to a point where I didn't need to work at the brewery at night, I came back with like a thousand bucks on the same spend budget. Um, and so um, I think my risk appetite was I have nothing to lose. I have everything to gain. I love the profession that I'm in. I'm going to throw um, excrement against the wall and see what sticks. And I'm going to try and, do my best to kind of innovate and change the landscape in which I operate in, which I love. So I started five companies in three years. Um, I worked first year of the first three companies at night at a brewery pouring beers four nights a week to keep my lights on for rent. And I just put everything back into the business. Like I said, five marketing websites for the firm in the first two years, hire people before I could afford them by taking pay cuts myself. So it's just like I had the conviction that this is where the world was heading and I had time. I didn't have an asset base personally. And so I was like, well, I'll just go hell for leather. Um, I really didn't need a lot to live on as a 25 to 30 year old. So it was, you know, pay my rent, have enough food to put on the table. They fed me at the pub, the brewery. So it's like, okay, four nights a week. I don't need dinner. Um, you know, and away you go. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say very high risk. Uh, but understanding there's a, a trade-off between risk and reward and that there was timeliness of it as well. So, um, yeah, good time to take risks is before family, before those serious relationships, all those sorts of things. Um, it's also when you have a high engine and a high motor, um, you know, spoiler alert, you get tired as you get older. Like, you know, you just have less energy generally. And so I was doing sort of seven days a week, about a hundred and something hours every week. So I had time, I had no money. Um, so I went to work. That, that's really interesting and I, I asked that question because I was reading a book about poker recently and uh, Thinking in Bets was the book and it kind of has a number of things that talks about risk and uh, obviously you put in a lot of hard work. So this next question isn't isn't in any way uh, having a go. I, but I do want to ask, I want to un- understand how you see it because the book the book speaks a lot about how sometimes good decisions lead to bad outcomes and bad decisions can still lead to good outcomes. And the example they give, I don't know how much of an NFL fan you are, but there was that play, Steve 
Steve Carroll called on the one yard line, New England versus Seahawks in the in the Super Bowl. And they decided to throw the ball rather than give it to their running back who was who was known for, you know, obviously getting it across the line. The result was it got intercepted, the game was over, they lost, and the headlines the next day, so it was the worst call you could possibly make. Um, but the analytics say it was actually a reasonable call because the odds of getting intercepted were low. And uh, the reality is that stops the clock, so you can you can then rush again anyway. But we're very we're very good at you know taking the outcome and then looking back and saying everything I did was great or everything that that we did was terrible. So do you do you ever look at some of the stuff that you did and think we got we got lucky there or what role do you think luck has to oh, play in this? Luck's huge. Uh, like you can have the best idea in the world, but if you're terrible at executing. Um, or if you can't find a way to execute it. Like, how many people tried to start an electric car startup? Like, there's been, like, one winner so far, and then the, the incumbents have kind of come along, right, and, and built electric cars. So there's idea, there's execution, and there's definitely luck and, and timing. And so sometimes people say better lucky than good because it's like it worked, we can overanalyze it, but, like, don't actually know why. I think the most in, important piece is you thinking about risk and your decision, similar to sort of that analysis post, but do it up front is I want to take a risk. These are my parameters for the risk. This is my appetite for the risk. And this is my like no go, right? Like at this point, I need to pull the plug or do something different. And so I use the Lean Canvas business model platform that I, I I was lucky enough to kind of go through Stanford Business School, uh, literally on a, on a there's something used to be something called Advanced Australia, so very early like sort of like start made ish conceptional days, and it was government funded. You had to pay your own ticket, but the program was funded, and so we got to do that at um, Stanford Business School, or School of Design, and it was super interesting because basically it's like how do you get a product to market, and what are all the components. Um, um, so my co-founder, Dan, and I both slept on floors of friends' places who lived in San Francisco because we had no money and uh, no budget, but we, we were able to have these amazing um, experiences. And I think the, the biggest piece is the intention. So what is my thought process? What do I think I get there? What does the outcome look like? And I can be wrong, but like, don't go in without a, a framework and like a, I'm happy with this risk because I'm pretty sure Steve Carroll would probably say, call the same play again today, right? Uh, it was his gut as well as data. Um, and yeah, one smidgen of the ball being higher probably or lower probably means there's no intercept and they win, right? So. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I, I like, I like the, the approach and I think, I think coming to terms with the decision you're making in that moment and saying, look at this at, right now, this is what we know. We're going to live and die by what we what, what we what we agree to right now, and we're not going to regret this, um, is obviously key because you're going to have a lot of those decisions that don't go your way. Um, moving focus a little bit now into the accounting market specifically. Obviously, we've spoken about your your journey and some of the decisions you've had to make, and 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 how you executed and pushed through a lot of barriers. If you start to think about the accounting market specifically. Um, something that you mentioned in your form was that if you were to do this again next time, that you'd recruit thought leaders earlier in the journey, I think. Why, why do you say that and why do you think that's a worthwhile strategy and what, what's a thought leader? Sure. Um, 
So we were operating under the assumption that what was going on in my brain around how a firm ran was was the right logical what we should build for. I'm not saying we didn't listen to customers, but we didn't have anyone that was kind of paid as we currently do to be within the business to kind of review product roadmaps, to sit in on discussions and calls, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as a result, you know, when you have one voice in the room, that voice happens to be the, you know, the CEO, like no one really argues. So the question is, was it right? Did it work? Um, but I was thinking about what we could do earlier is bring those folks forward um, and also becomes more scalable. So um, years ago, we had a, a good mate um, who I'm sure everyone here knows. So Trent McLaren uh, joined our team and Trent's job description, it was way more detailed on this, but it was effectively make guy obsolete in the public eye the default, because it was like, I was the social media, the the face, the talker, the guy on the stand, the person going around to all the zero roadshows and all that sort of stuff. And none of that's bad, but like, it was just not scalable. Um, and if I'm trying to do that, plus all the other things that as a company gets bigger, um, you kind of have way more response. I, I now understand why I think the first time I heard Mike Cannon Brooks talk, everything was about team, people and culture. Whereas I was sitting in that room having three people on our team, so very early days, thinking like, I want to land my next 100 or 1,000 customers. Like That's what you're talking about makes no sense to me right now, right? So it's like the audience probably wasn't a good fit. Now, if I'm going to get up on stage, it's definitely going to be a part of like what I say because it's just a bigger a bigger chunk of my day and it's incredibly important. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, I just think having better people around you or people who are more experienced and, and can provide diversity of view, who will also push back because they're of the same profession, but on, on the team, um, incredibly helpful. So that would be the, the reason for that because I think we probably would have done and marketed certain things differently. I don't think it's like a, a like we made this faux pas because we didn't have it necessarily. I think it just would have helped. Yeah, and and so then you know once you're at that early stage and uh, maybe you're able to remove yourself from being the face of the the business, you start to you know you've got you've got some early users, you've got um, you've got some traction. We obviously work very closely with the early adopters, the people before you're trying to get the majority market, um, and I think there's a lot of startups who are able to um, get a little bit of traction there. Um, but then struggle with the struggle with the majority market. You guys were able to not only build something that was enticing and interesting to people at the front, the innovators and the early adopters. You were able to get this through and 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 penetrate a much bigger market of, I suppose you can say, more traditional accountants and get them to change their thinking. What do you think the difference is between a startup that can get a few early users and a startup that can really take hold? Of the accounting market. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it's understanding your ICP, so ideal customer profile, um, how you market to them, what product features you built, and then it's a story you tell around how they can use it to run their business. Um, weirdly, I feel like another great thing is like product structure, like early stage. You can build and release a feature really quickly to go and convert 10 customers who tell you that they would sign up potentially if you built it. You get to, you know, a couple of hundred customers in and, you know, team of five, 10 people, everything starts to slow down. Um, and you're also remembering everything you launch, you have to support. And so 
as we got bigger, I feel like we got much more settled on who you are and why you would use ignition and the problems it would solve. And then as we've built out the product over the years, there's just more and more use cases that we can account for without having to promise or say we're going to build something. Um, and so I think we did that quite well. And that structure, it's weird. Um, the larger firms actually respect it. They may not want it, but it's kind of like, okay, cool. So you do X to, X to Y. And if I want to go outside of that, I need to look somewhere else. Like, okay, cool. Well, I'm aware of that. I'm happy to make the investment because it's typically not the sole operator, right? I'm happy to make the investment because right now we're paying admin teams to do that and that's costing us X and we have no visibility. Um, so I think that's the kind of understanding those different profiles and the messaging, but the um, yeah, getting to 100, I'm, I'm not going to lie, is, is hard. And then getting to a thousand is like hard again. And then you know, go past that. It's even harder again, but I still think that the first hundred are kind of going to steer you if you listen to them on deciphering and figuring out who your ICP is. And then you can expand the ICP over time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers the question specifically, but I would just say that like the structure and, and understanding and building out the problems that you solve and then understanding your ICP is probably the, to and fro that constantly needs to be in there and, and ultimately if people haven't heard of you, they're not going to buy you. So like making sure that you're present in kind of all the big things. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. I think the thing that I saw from the outside as an accountant in a firm going to roadshows was the level of investment you guys made in it, almost educating the market. It felt like that. Did you, did you feel like you had to tell people, Hey, this is actually how you should do things. <laughs> uh, that's my good like, I, I was of the view that so I was thinking about everything with like a client lens so even even here so software company has customer who's an accountant bookkeeper and then I think about their clients so as a small business owner what do I want I want uh, I want to know what I'm getting I want to know how much I'm going to pay for it I want to know when it's going to be delivered and I don't want any surprises right assurance like clarity confidence but assurance right and I looked at our platform and like, well, that's also out of the box. And so the question, the hardest folks for hardest change for people was typically it was originally just cloud. And then it was like, okay, well, how do I get off timesheets? Um, and how do I still make money? And so I feel like we had to do a, a, a large amount of work on pricing, how to think about how you make the move, you know, think about what your clients want because you can get an overdraft facility from a bank, but ultimately your clients are going to fund your business. So you really should be thinking about what they want and understanding their changing needs because you might be their only provider that is not a monthly fixed fee that makes it easy for them to run the business. So um, we did a lot around that. Um, I feel like the other thing that we talked about a lot was um, growth and a growth mindset, whether that's growth and efficiency, so tech stack um, specifically, or the other side being like marketing, go-to-market, niching, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I wouldn't say we had to educate the market on like software. It was more the how the new model could work and why your clients would appreciate it and sign up for it and why not to be afraid of that. And then the last bit was how it's actually better to build a scale, better for building a scalable, either more profitable with the same amount of fees or higher growth, higher profit business that'll be more attractive for sale or partner buying at some point. 
Guy, I just wanted to, to ask you on the ICP that you've mentioned how important it is and, and it's definitely something that we see is, is always challenging, especially in the early days. Um, but we want to avoid a little bit, you know, startups listening to these podcasts and they're like, oh, guy is successful. He said, understanding ICP, and I'm like, great. And they're like, oh, how the fuck do I do that? I have no idea. So I don't expect you to give us a half hour playbook around that, but just in a couple of minutes, what, what did you kind of like learn on mistakes that you've made? as far as like how do you uncover that ICP that's kind of like foundational for for in the beginning and for your future growth? For sure. So the beginning, uh, like most startups, we had like a freemium model. And so pricing and, and pushback and feedback is probably the earliest thing. So who's signing up, who's happy to pay and why, right? So that's kind of step one. Second part is of the people who stay with us and grow, what do they do that is common so you know are they all are they a zero firm are they a cookbooks firm are they a mild firm like what, what are their parameters how big are they what's their revenue how many team members do they have and the last bit is obviously churn so as you get people exiting the business why because if you can current then you start to build like a backwards story it's like who are the ones that are successful who are the ones that churn and then what does our pricing and packaging and our marketing look like because it could just be that you're too expensive it could be that you're too cheap. It could be that you have um, a whole bunch of large firms that want to use your product, but you're pricing it at the small end. And to get the larger firms, you actually need to boost the price up so you can spend more money on marketing and spend money on sales teams going and visiting them because there's sort of like it's all sunk cost. So all those things kind of pile together to here's our ICP, what problem are we solving? Um, and you know, making sure they align because you don't want to have a you know two dollar a user product that EWC is using, right? Because you're like, wait, that's, that's so like so skewed. You want to have like a two dollar a month product that is all product like growth with no sales, no marketing, no onboarding that perhaps every firm in the country uses. Um, and so, what problem are you solving? So I know that's fairly broad, but I would start at the bottom. So like, you won't have churn to start with. So who's signing up? What are our most successful customers that stay with us and grow, grow their revenue with us and get value? What do they look like? What commonalities they have? What features are they using? And then the last bit is of the folks who churn, what reasons are they giving us for their churn? And then you kind of work back up. Um, and it will vary over time. So, you know, day one ignition, startup, uh, high growth accounting firms. Uh, you know, year three, four, it was kind of like, uh, you know, Less than 10 people, probably a zero firm, probably in the Commonwealth country. And then we fast forward to today, uh, majority of our customers are coming out of the US. Um, QuickBooks firms bend towards more tax firms um, who do and, and rely on engagement letters every single year. And then like as that model in the US switches to similar to here with client accounting services, so bookkeeping management accounting is kind of going to shift um, into the model like we've seen here. Um, and so like... You can't see ICP kind of changes over time. We've also pushed our pricing up um, to reflect sort of the investment in the product. So it's typically firms that are, you know, not a um, probably not a solo practitioner or sorry, not someone who does it as a hobby. Probably never been someone that does it as a hobby. Like if you have three invoices a month to reconcile, like quite honestly, like I hope you use this, but you don't need to. Like that's it's reasonably easy when you have 30, uh, 50, 100, a couple of hundred, you know, like. We solve a huge problem for you, you know, hours, if not days a month. 
And can I just uh, follow up on that one? Because again, something that we see with a lot of early stage startups is, especially those that we work with that have been in the market for six months, a year, two years, and they don't have product market fit. They kind of look at everything that you said, but what we often see, they, it, it's hard for them to unpick the correlations, the causations, just the noise. And then they start pulling all these levers, like they increase pricing, they take down pricing, they add features, they take out features, they change their marketing, their rebrand, but they're not actually, none of those get them towards product market fit. So from everything you say, how, again, you don't, you don't, I don't expect a half hour playbook, but how can you unpick what is the noise and what's actually directing you to have some confidence, this is the lever that I should pull uh, you know, how, how can you tell why people are churning, getting that feedback can be a bit challenging. So yeah, I'm not sure if you've got anything to add a little bit on that. Yeah, we've, we've got it. So more mature companies, days we have exit flow surveys built in. Um, it's not super prohibitive, but it's helpful. Um, we obviously call or try to call churn customers that don't go through that piece to understand why. Um, and so I would start there, but I think like the first place to start is like who's, even if you don't think you've got product market fit, focus in on the people that are using your product, assuming there's some, and why they love it. And then try and figure out how many of those are in the market. So size up your market correctly. And then understand the appetite or how many um, people look like the archetypes of your customers and what they would pay for next, right? Because everything like early days is you exist, your early customers, what do they want? And can you get them to refer somebody? Uh, how many more are they? Are there that look like them? And it's really, really targeted because everything else is kind of irrelevant. Because if you can take the 10, end up with 50 that look like them, 100 that look like them, you've kind of proven that you have the right to exist. I wouldn't say it's product market fit from a, a scalability top of funnel piece necessarily. But early days, unit economics are kind of irrelevant. It's proof that you provide value to somebody. And then, then the second part becomes about how do you, how do you get more and more and more of them? Like how do you scale it up? But I feel like a hundred is a good critical mass point where you can actually have a meaningful data set to understand why those hundred customers are using you and staying. Prior to that, it's kind of hustle and gut. If I'm being honest, um, I think about how we grew. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that's a. a Super relevant, but you can definitely be thoughtful at the outset, right? Like coming in with a thesis on this is the market size, these are the number of firms that are on this particular platform. We think they have a high propensity to use our product. We don't have any competitors in that ecosystem. We've spoken to 20 of them before we launched. This is what they're after. We're going to deliver it. We're going to give them a free year on the product. We want to get as much feedback as possible and then think about commercialization. Um, Funniest thing happened to us was we went from freemium to paid and we had a whole bunch of people who were on the freemium plan who'd never used our product. Turned to paid, started paying us. Didn't get angry, like, oh, it's great. I'll start using it now. And just like facepalm because it was the biggest stressful moment of like the early stage career was toggling no more free, no more freemium. I, uh, I heard through the grapevine that there was an interesting pricing. This could be a myth, but you guys used to price like $99 for 100 clients or something, and then you changed it to $99 for 25, and more people liked that because the, the feeling of waste was less. Yep. Um, I, 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 I would, imagine the I psychology would, is so interesting. Oh, it's, isn't it just? I would say that's, that's likely fairly accurate. Um, we also 
kind of rebundled and repackaged a little bit so the and we built more features that we were launching so we when we did that we also knew we had some features coming out that people who are larger firms uh, were going to want and that was a professional and you know candidly if you're building a software product you the only way you can keep funding development aside from maintenance is if you're building more features that are either going to attract more customers or generate more revenue or retain customers at a higher rate. Like those, those are the things, right? Otherwise it's like just going to maintenance mode. So I've got a friend who's a solo entrepreneur. Um, he's built one product, has a monthly update to make sure it still works. So he's got a contract developer, but it's just him. Um, and he's, uh, what's he turning over? Like half a million dollars a year and growing at like 30, 40%. And so it's like all profit. Um, and he's 10 grand a month. No, not even. He spends $10,000 a month. Um, yeah, it's, you can do that, but like he has no desire to build something that's solving a huge problem for the whole market. It's like it's this little niche thing, um, and I think that's it's super interesting, right? Because we obviously went the other way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think founders need to look inwards and say, "What well, am I doing? This is this aligning with what I actually want in my life?" And that's a much bigger discussion. We're already at the longest episode we've ever had, and um, I feel like we haven't touched on scaling, going global, anything like that, but. But maybe we'll have to get you back in for a different conversation at another time because we have to wrap up eventually. What, wh where we always like to finish, um, and, and uh, it, it is on. I mean, obviously, the, the accounting tech topic is is what we're what we're doing here, and we had a bit of a chat before about the analogy, so you know now what it is. Um, but yeah, do you do you have any? Uh, our final question is always, you know, do you, do you have a, a classic tar pit mistake that? that you'd, you'd suggest um, early stage founders in accounting tech or maybe broader startups, um, you know, should really avoid? Yeah, I mean, uh, we kind of touched on it earlier. It's like, don't build things because someone says they will buy it once you do. Um, so that stated intention typically doesn't always flow through. Sometimes it's just a way to placate you. Um, and so always think about it features you build are not particularly the land a particular customer build what's the right thing for your journey based on the existing customer base particularly in the early days and then track what everyone wants and go back to them but just don't always expect that it's going to be follow through um, because the different customers particularly in accounting might have different timelines and when they're actually ready to implement your software so they still might want it but it might be oh yeah but i meant two years time or yeah like that might be the, the conversation that you have so Stated intention doesn't equal sale. Um, it's probably like the the the, uh, the the sound bit there. Yeah, no, that's that's a good note to finish on. And I think the uh, any hypothetical question that you ask a potential customer is a, is 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 risky to trust because people, I think people look at themselves in quite a fond light when they look at their future self. But um, you know, when we when we tell founders to ask certain questions, it's much more about saying. Ask them about what they actually do. Ask ask for an example of when they did that, you know, and, and you get some really good insight around, oh, actually, you know, you're right. I, I've never done that before. Or, um, but, yeah, look, thanks, Guy. Um, awesome conversation. Appreciate your honesty. Thanks for opening up, sharing a few of the challenges and um, I suppose, you know, a few mistakes as well that you've made along the way. And thank you on behalf of the community for driving so much innovation to our profession and looking forward to continuing this conversation in part two. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Johan. Thanks, Jack. See you all. Thank you once again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you are a potential founder, 
in your early stages of developing a product or elsewhere in the journey struggling to achieve product market fit, we would love for you to reach out at www.earlyadoptershub.com. This has been another episode of the Accounting Tech Tar Pit presented by Early Adopters Hub, the accelerator for accounting tech.